hyperinflation episodes. They are always and everywhere, always and everywhere, a fiscal problem. Hmm. Governments running out of control in terms of their spending, printing money to, to, to finance that yeah. in in a way to to collect basically the, the the taxes that you know are embedded in the change in the monetary base, right? So it's it's everywhere. It's everywhere uh, ramp popping in government. Hello. Welcome again to the episode in the Let Feel Prosper series. My name is Dr. Van Scan. I hope you're having a prosperous day. Well, today is October 23rd, 2023, and I'm delighted to be joined by another guest who fights for liberty, makes sure that we preserve liberty and life and pursuit of happiness as much as possible. And it's just a fighter on so many different areas that we're going to have a great discussion today that you won't want to miss. And it's none other than Dr. Car Carlos Cavajo. Carlos, welcome to the Let Feel Prosper show. Thanks, Vance. Great to be here. Great. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on. Uh, we've been friends for a while, and and so it's good to have a just good good discussion today about you know COVID, the economy, just a whole bunch of good stuff. Before we get into all that, though, let me go ahead and read your bio for the audience, and then we'll jump right in. So, Carlos Cavajo is a professor in statistics at the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas in Austin. His research develops a statistical model to enhance our understanding of the effects of an economic policies. Originally from Brazil. Carlos holds a PhD in statistics from Duke University and was an assistant professor in the faculty of the University of Chicago before joining UT in 2010. Carlos founded the Salem Center for Policy in 2020 at the University of Texas. Um, the Salem Center is dedicated to helping students and business leaders better understand policy decisions, costs, benefits, and consequences. The center's work draws from multiple disciplines and empirical methods to help navigate trade-offs in pursuit of human flourishing and preserving a free society. So with all that stuff, Carlos, uh, let me start off like I do every guest. Why do you do what you do every day? You mentioned the Salem Center. So I'm using my, my, my T-shirt here for the, for the guests that are just listening to this. I'm showing my T-shirt that says, yep. no solutions, only trade-offs. And that's a, a quote from, I think Thomas Sowell was the person that, that, that gets that quote, the, the, uh, accredited with that quote. And that's the, 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 the sort of motto of the Salem Center. So what gets me excited, what gets me, me going here is that I think the idea embedded in this phrase is something that is very, very underappreciated in our society, in our student bodies, in higher education in general. And what the Salem Center tries to do is try to make sure people remember that, remember to think about the unintended consequences of policies, remember to think quantitatively about measuring the effects and not the intentions of what people are trying to, to push forward, in particular when it comes to economic policy. So we dabble in lots of different areas of, of, of you know, the last few years, of course, the, the culture wars are something very uh, salient in people's minds, and there's lots of things that we touch on that as well. But our core work is still is thinking about first base economic principles, thinking about trade-offs when thinking about policies. And with the very strong bias of, as you mentioned, right, of individual liberty being a central aspect of what makes people prosperous. And, yes. and therefore, when thinking about anything in evaluating trade-offs, we're always often thinking about, well, from an economic perspective, right? Thinking about in terms of human flourishing and human prosperity. And I think that not only philosophically, but through the years, uh, through a lot of evidence, we know that the more you give individuals agency and freedom, the more they will prosper. And that's something that apparently has to be reminded in, in every generation. Every generation seems to forget that. And that's why I think it's so important for, for us to wake up in the morning and try to do uh, try to do what we do. So yeah, the passion to create a Salem Center was exactly that. And you know, in your intro, you mentioned 2020. We actually started earlier than that. Uh, it was named 20, uh, Salem Center in 2020, but we we've been going, you know, working on this. I think since uh, 2016, 17 is when I really started working on it. 
Yeah, no, it's great. And y'all are doing some great work there. I had the opportunity to speak at one of your events recently. And y'all and y'all do bring in a, some great speakers. Who are some of the speakers that y'all have had? Well, just uh, last week, we had a big uh, debate uh, featuring Steve Coonan. You know, Steve Coonan, he mm-hmm. was uh, um, Obama's science czar, I think, during, during a period of time, right? And he wrote this book that very, very interesting, scientifically annotated book. It's called Unsettled. And mm-hmm. basically trying to be very frank about what we know, what we don't know about climate policy. Yeah, and we have a debate, uh, climate, climate science, actually not climate policy, climate science, and the debate that we hosted was a debate where where he was discussing with somebody that was a prominent uh, climate scientist from Harvard, mm. had both of them on campus here, each discussing whether or not net zero by twenty fifty is an idea that makes sense from a scientific point of view, and yeah. Kuhn would say no, it doesn't make sense, this doesn't work for this, this, and this, and of course the the, the Harvard professor take the other side, and again that's the type of conversation that we try to encourage on campus that. Oftentimes, for example, in the issue of climate science and climate issues, climate policy in generally, the university has a very monolithical view of what should be done and what's the system with the problem or how to address the problem. And yet it's more complicated than that, as you see in the political system, as you see all over the world. And it's important for us to be, be very clear eyed about what do we know, what do we don't know, what are the costs, what are the benefits? And that's the type of discussion. So him was, was yeah. one. And, and I, don't, I mean, we have had so, so many. many great speakers, including yeah, yeah, yeah. yourself, of course, in that. In that uh, and, and it's like we, we tend to do. I mean, there, there are some times where we have almost a person a week on campus. Yeah. Uh, we were very active during COVID, uh, questioning a lot of what was going on during that time and, and brought a lot of people that were like open voices and people that really were were. We're trying to figure out and understand what was going on, and, and but being open-minded about it, and not just being the group thing. Yep. So w- w- we try to offer a program that takes takes a, a different, provides different voices to what is typical, to, what you expect typically on campuses. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's great, and I know that y'all have had on some of the guests that I've had actually on the Life Your Prosper show, like um, Casey Mulligan. I know was there from Chicago, yeah. and and others. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I hope the audience will go and check it out. A lot of good information that's there. What's the website again? I'll be salemcenter.org. Yep, salemcenter.org. Uh, and we and we keep everything we do in our YouTube channels. If you go to YouTube and and go to Salem Center for Policy on YouTube, subscribe to our channel. You got a lot of stuff in there yes. and and it's a it's a pretty active group. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I'll be sure to put it in the show notes page as well, um advancedgen.com. But okay, so like we have all this stuff that's going on over the last couple of years, you know, Carlos, and I wonder like from from growing up in Brazil and and coming to the US, did you capture some of your thought process that you have today, like your worldview from where you grew up, like how did that influence who you are today? No, no doubt. I mean, that yeah. was uh, growing up in, in Brazil in the 80s and, and the 80s in particular. I don't know if, you, if you're if you aware, if your audience is aware of this, but Brazil in the 80s had one of the worst hyperinflations in, in the history of any place, right? I have a couple of bad jokes here, dad jokes I like to tell. So here's a dad joke for you. Yeah, do, you know how many ze- do you know how many zeros Brazil cut from its currency in the 20th century? No. Because, you know, every so often, prices got, numbers got so big that it's right. cutting zeros, right? We cut 27 zeros in our wow. history. 27 wow. times, the, 27 zeros. So nine times they cut three zeros, right? And do you know what a one followed by 27 zeros spells? What, what, is, what do you call it? No. You probably don't, right? It's a, no. it's a Brazilian. Okay. So anyway. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a terrible oh, joke. Oh, man. That's, a good that's, one. that's how bad that's how <laughs> bad things were in the 20th century in terms yeah. of mismanagement of the economic system in Brazil, right? So as a kid, I remember as an eight-year-old kid, I think I had my allowance indexed daily. Wow. Every day prices would change in school for you to buy your little lunch and stuff. So my allowance was actually changing value every day because folks that had the ability to protect themselves against the monetary run up 
they had, you know, they, they held things into, into assets that were indexed essentially, right? Mm. But of course, a vast majority of the population were, were living, you know, they would get their paychecks and literally people would go rush to the grocery store and buy non-perishable goods because that's the only thing that would set, hold value, right? Yeah. So it, it's, it's, it's an incredibly damaging situation caused 100% by government, by government spending, by central control of the economy mm. being completely mismanaged. So watching that growing up, it was always like, I mean, this is something that that's not right. And, and this is due to this set of people making decisions. And how can we sort of like, so being, being skeptical of government was something that, you know, was easy to absorb in that mm. environment. Of course, that also made me very interested in economics because, well, I want to understand what's going on here. And and my dad was 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 uh, uh my dad was an engineer was an engineer mm -hmm. in the navy so he was very conservative I guess uh, uh and and I joked that he taught me three things in life always uh, learn math learn languages and always watch out for the communists. And, <laughs> and good it turns lesson. out that he it's, it's good lessons exactly all of them were very useful in my career and, yes. and actually the three of them are very useful in my career and and being surrounded by them in a university is kind of fun. Yeah um, right right. <laughs> <laughs> so that sort of encouraged me a lot to pursue uh, uh, and understand the economics. And that's why I went to college and study, study economics for, for, uh, uh, before deciding to become more in the quantitative side and data science. But, and I went to a college that was built from a Chicago school perspective. So it was a, mm -hmm. a college that had a lot of former PhDs from the University of Chicago, a lot of Milton Friedman folks. And I have my office here. Oh, there you, you go. Right behind me here, nice. I, have, I have Uncle Milton. So yes. that was, again, I, I had those ideas already. I saw the mess. I, I saw the importance of economic freedom sort of changing the way things were in Brazil. And in fact, the, the reforms that were positive in the 90s that took Brazil out of the rot were reforms that are very much what they call these days a neoliberal reform, mm. right? Reforms yeah. they came in and really did things in a way that, you know, resemble more, more what, what the U.S. Uh, uh, system is yet yeah. you know we, we we veered away from those in the past few years brazil has been in not not so great shape but much better than what we saw uh, uh what we saw in the 80s right so that was a time where neoliberalism was was something that you know was working right and i i got to be in school at a time where those i, I was learning about those ideas as they're being put in practice yeah uh, and again very much motivated by system in the u.s that if you think about the 80s and 90s right boom times in the u.s and and that, that, that sort of anchor of the become a hope of, of what economic freedom and prosperity can do can do to people. So yeah, that, that's made it very easy yeah. to be, you know, drink, drinking into that Kool-Aid. And, and But then it's not just a Kool-Aid, as as, no. as I mentioned a lot in, in, in the Salem Center, it's about the evidence. The evidence yeah. speaks for itself. I don't need to, 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 you know, be ideological to point to you that a neoliberal system actually leads people uh, prosperity. It's obvious yeah. in the data. It, it's obvious if you liberalize markets, if you liberalize uh, people's uh, labor market in particular, take away shackles that stops them from pursuing what they want to do or they're best suited to do, everybody benefits. We, we, we know this over and over and over and over again. So anyway, yeah. I got to the US and, and had the opportunity later on, much many years later in my career, after being a professor in statistics now for a few years, focusing a lot on the technical side of things, Mm -hmm. um, I started noticing that, you know, not notice, I already knew that, but I was getting more and more uh, uh, aware of the problems associated with the lack of that thinking, of mm -hmm. a neoliberal thinking, of a Chicago school thinking in our student body, even in the business school. I mean, you think of a business school, a place that will be more uh, economically conservative, and it sure. turns out it's not. It's a place that, that people just doesn't understand the power of markets, the ethics and, and, and morality of markets, mm -hmm. none of that, right? So, so I figured that, well, maybe I can do something about it by trying to create the center. And that's what led to the creation of the center and the, the, you know, a lot of different things that I end up 
being able to do since. Yeah, no, that's awesome, Carlos. And I, I love hearing that background too, because you experienced it. I mean, so I grew up in the eighties, right? Uh, I was pretty young then, but my parents, they struggled, but it was a different type of struggle. Yes. You had a lot of the inflationary pressures that was going on, but not necessarily the hyperinflation like you had in, in Brazil, we had unemployment that was pretty high. My dad lost his job and stuff before my, my parents got divorced and everything. But you know, that also had some influence on, on our life and futures and everything else. But it's kind of something that I think maybe in America, we take for granted too often about what the power of free market capitalism is compared to, because we just don't experience it in other countries. And I think we're getting a little bit glimpse now over the last couple of years as inflation is running a little bit hotter, you know, three, four, 9% at one point, but still that's not hyperinflation. <laughs> and where you see right. all of these problems created by government on full display, which is one reason why you know, I always love talking to you because I learned something about history, about economics and how all this stuff comes together. And, and so I wonder like when you're explaining this to your students or to you know, your family, what else do you like to pinpoint that's like, you know what, this is something else that we went through that you don't really have any idea what it's about, but this is why we have to be so worried about government influence in our lives. So the, the inflation is definitely one uh, yeah. one of those lessons and what, what we saw happening, right? So so uh, there's a lot of discussion we don't have to go into here, all the different schools of monetary right. monetarism versus this, that, and the other. I, I particularly enjoy the work of John Cochran and uh, yeah. the fiscal theory of, of, of price levels, which is, is again, it doesn't explain every episode of, of inflationary pressure over, over the years in, 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 in all countries in the world. However, there's like a, an obvious thing. There's an obvious, there's an undeniable thing that inflation hyperinflation episodes, they are always and everywhere, always and everywhere, a fiscal problem. Hmm. Governments running out of control in terms of their spending, printing money to, to finance that yeah. in, in a way to, to collect basically the, the, the taxes that you know, are embedded in the change in the monetary base, right? So it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere uh, ramp popping in government lack of control of their finances. Yeah. So that's something that, you know, looking from the perspective of the U.S., where you haven't seen a problem like that ever in our history, really almost ever in our history of like, I mean, it's hard to explain through that lens, for example, the inflationary pressures that starts in the late 60s and endures all the way to, to, to the 80s in the U.S. It's the, the fiscal theory doesn't explain that all so well, right? Because that's not a hyperinflationary theory. There's other things that go on that, that are impactful on inflation as well. Yeah. But when you see what happens in the past, I don't know, if you look at, at the, our fiscal position in the past five to 10 years, is it's getting to be problematic, right? Mm. Since 2008, the government does a lot of expansions of not only the fiscal side, but the monetary side. Then COVID comes along, we really blow up the, 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 the spending and there's no appetite anywhere uh, to, to do anything about it. So that's one lesson that you look at it. Mm -hmm. and, if, you know, I'm not going to say that I can explain the inflation of 2021, 2022 as a function of government spending, but like, yeah, it's kind of like not coincidental either. Right? I don't know. Yeah. There must be a, you know, there's a huge impact there. We did something really, really extreme in our sort of throwing money in the economy from the fiscal side. Yeah. So not surprising. So I worry about that and try to point to people. Listen, if this, if it, this doesn't get under control, at some point, this becomes pretty bad. Yeah. And and let's not get there. Let's not allow ourselves to get there. We need to get our, our fiscal house in order. That's that's yep. one thing that I try to to, you know, that, that's, a, that's a that's a lesson. Right. But the yeah, other lesson sure. is reg the other lesson is regulation. I still, you know, we, we complain a lot about regulation in the U.S. And there's so much and it's so bad. 
but in other places in the world is much much worse right mm. so uh, i have i have brothers and i have family in brazil still I have a, a a brother that's a that is an entrepreneur that a lot of you know created a couple of companies and so on when he tells me about the things that he has to go through and the way government sort of really really slows his ability to do things in brazil it's baffling it's baffling mm. to what and, and when i tell him how it would be here it's like oh no no that, that's unbelievable it's it's uh, it's something that it's been growing and encroaching in our liberties. People don't think about that as an encroachment on our liberties, but of course it is, right? Yeah. Uh, having to ask permission to do something is something that is an encroachment on your on your liberty. But the levels of which we have in 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 countries that have been very influenced by an European system, for example, like Brazil has, are very damaging. Slows mm. down the ability of people to create and adapt. That the other thing is that people think about the just the notion of oh, you know, it's a matter of economic growth, and but no, it's a matter of, of adapting to change to, to 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 different situations that you know the world throws at us, right? Yeah. So. It's not surprising to me that the U.S. is a country that is able to get out and ad adjust to what happened during the COVID pandemic relative to other economies, because people here can actually change directions and do things and 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 readjust to a new situation. Whereas a country like Brazil, all of a sudden, like, oh, how do you start a new business to address yeah. this new situation that just hit us? This new shock, right? You can't. The adjustment time in an economy that's very much controlled and and regulated by the government. It's, 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 it becomes very hard to, to adapt to new situations. Yeah. And uh, I, I, you see that every day. And I like to point that out. Like, look, uh, I was not surprised. Look at the U.S. We are we're able to get out of the pandemic. Again, all sorts of problems, right? But like our ability to get out of this, our yeah. business sector has been very, very strong because we are able to adapt a lot more easily. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. One of the things I talk a lot about, Carlos, on the show is about institutions and the importance of institutions. And when you have those arrangements, um, free market capitalism or public, all the stuff that we have here, it allows for the dynamism of the economy of people to be able to satisfy their own you know, satisfaction um, compared to a top down approach. It could be more from a bottom up. I'm a little bit worried sometimes about some of our industries that are taken over more by government. I'm a little bit worried about some of the populism rhetoric uh, that's going on as well. But I also get it, right? Because there's a lot of people who are frustrated about the situation that they're in. And it's easy right. oftentimes to just blame certain things, whether that be the industrial policy that's going on or the labor market. Maybe wages aren't high enough, so they want a minimum wage. It's easy to say, hey, here's the solution. You know, government has a solution for you without... To your point, exactly. No solutions, <laughs> only trade-offs. What are the trade-offs of that? And what's creating right. some of those problems in the system is usually government, <laughs> government-created right. problem. And so it's hard to double down on, on a policy or using government to solve a government problem or government failure, you know, as as, right. as John Buchanan and, and, and others who have talked about, or James Buchanan, sorry, James Buchanan had talked about before with um, rent-seeking and, and and regulatory capture and a lot of other things that happen in the economy. But um, one of the things, and, and uh, you, could, you could remark on that if you'd like, but one of the things I wanted to make sure we tied together on is you did a great video recently on YouTube talking about how the economy is really just people and it, it's made up of individuals that come together. And, and I, I thought that was beautiful. I really liked the video a lot. I'll be sure to put in the show notes page for everyone um, because really that is what the economy is all about. We'd like to talk about these big macro things because they're, they're fun. We, well, I don't know if they're fun, but they, to us, they're fun. Um, and then we hear them in the news a lot, like the unemployment rate and everything else. But really at the end of the day, whether it's Adam Smith, Hayek, Mises, uh, Milton Friedman, you know, all these folks were really trying to figure out how humans behave. 
and and how right. we come together because that's really all that markets are it is is just this invisible hand of people coming together and and coordinating through prices and the marketplace supply and demand and everything else none of us actually see a supply and demand chart in our head maybe you and i do because right. we think more right. like an economist but in general we don't see it. it it just happens and it's so beautiful but i love to hear the way that you explain how individuals are really about the economy yeah, I mean, the economy is us, right? So that, that's yep. exactly right. So, so the, there's no such thing as the economy. It doesn't, mm. doesn't exist. It's a, it's, a, it's a fictitious thing. It's an aggregation of everyone's individual behavior on a daily basis, waking up, deciding to brew your coffee versus tea or water, while that's sending a signal to somebody else to produce that or not, right? So there's this, uh, I mean, it's still to this day, uh, the description of Adam Smith of like, well, it's not by the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, mm. and the candlestick maker that you have that stuff there when you show up to buy it, right? It's because right. he understands that because people show up, because there's all this network of, of individuals there are like, you know, suppliers, you don't know what you're doing over here. It turns out that you're helping the bread maker two days down the road, right? You're selling something that has nothing, you don't see directly the impact of that. So there's no control of that. I mean, if you try to control the system, it becomes, it becomes very, very problematic. And we've seen that attempts to control the system of individuals pursuing their individual benefit and therefore leading to benefits to all, leading to this, this thing that, 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 that works, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's really hard to understand in any kind of intervention really, in the economy, quote unquote, it's really hard to understand what the, 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 direct, the effects are going to be. Mm. We as economists have, we developed through the 20th century uh, a notion, and, and, and I don't want to use the word what is, what is Hayek's uh, scientism. That's not, that's not the word that I, that I like to use because that's sort of critical, of, I think it's overcritical to to say that what we're doing in economic science in particular is not science. I think it is. Yeah. It yeah. is. However, however, forgetting that anything, the, the more you want to try to understand and isolate an issue, that's going to be at best a partial equilibrium type mm -hmm. of statement you can make. You never are able to make a general equilibrium, like how these things all like percolate through the system in a way that, so it's very important to try to understand these things, but we have to be very humble. Yeah. humble to understand that's very very you know and a lot of economists are very humble to speak but there's also a tendency of being like well no no no, i, I wrote this paper that kind of know this partial effects here i know how this thing is going to work overall and try to now you know put me in charge now we'll control the quote the economy again right? yeah and that's just like it's very dangerous and we see mm -hmm. that 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 happening to, to, to many episodes of, of of again centralization leading to a lot of things that you don't 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 understand what's going to happen and then therefore uh there are problems Again, caused by the fact that individuals are not really necessarily the thing that you're trying to command from the top, yeah. right? Um, the command from the top has an impact on individuals. It, it, you change their incentives, you change their behavior, but in oftentimes very unpredictable ways, and it's very difficult to ahead of time know. So if you don't know, right, the, the, I think prudence will tell you that, well, if you don't know the impact of a, of a measure on, on people's lives across the whole spectrum of, of human existence, one has to be very careful before making making a decision in that direction. And I think no be, no better place to see uh, that, that hubris and that sort of lack of humility than what we saw during COVID. Yep. Yep. So so I was I happened to be involved in some policy sort of uh, advisory boards during the very early stage of the pandemic and and very quickly. And I don't I'm, I don't know if I can explain why that is, but very quickly there was a a sort of coalescing around one way to think about the problem. There's only one thing to do, we need to lock down. We need to just like putting people in house arrest. That was the, mm -hmm. essentially what, what was the, and you know, I get, I got brought into a room where there were some doctors, some epidemiologists, both in Texas and in Austin, 
yeah. there was the zeitgeist. There was the, they're already there sort of like thinking that is the only decision forward here. And I, and I tried to bring in, again, the, the trade-off aspect of things and be like, wait a second, do we know, do we understand the costs associated with this? Because it's obviously not costly. Yeah. And, and, and so, so I wanted to think from a cost-benefit analysis, right? And that was rejected. That was rejected mm. in, a, in a very strong way, even all, almost in moral grounds, that that was yeah. like thinking, oh, you're just trying to trade right. lives with money. It's like, no, 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 no. Yeah. We always do that. Every single decision we make, right. there is a, to some degree, a, a trade-off between life and money that we do, right? We drive a car, we, right. we, you know, we, we drink a beer. Yeah. Uh, those are decisions that are, you know, um, satisfaction versus risk and so on, right? Yeah. So, so, so clearly it's not, it's not you know, uh, immoral to think about the cost benefits associated with this. But beyond that, it was not just the fact that there was no cost and benefit discussions that really upset me. And of course, not me, but like a number of us in, in, in the world were like, wait a second, this is crazy what's going yeah. on here. Uh, the cost, the benefits of these things are not going to outweigh the cost that we're facing. Mm. But beyond that, the thing that really was a, 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 that I cannot explain and I cannot understand is how people had this, this sort of like lack of humility to, to, under, to, to think about, listen, this can be, you don't understand how this decision can affect Lots of things. Yeah. Even if I try to go through the cost-benefit analysis, there is no way I'm going to be able to really understand how everything out there in the world will work once you tell everybody you shall not get out of your house. Yep. It's not like yes, yeah, some jobs you can adapt. Some, and in fact, to my surprise, to my surprise, honestly, yeah. I thought yeah. that we would have a much higher collapse of the economic activity, and that would be something that would lead to. I mean, we had something what thirty percent dip in GDP in one quarter. Yeah. Uh, for Q1, I think it was Q1 2020, which is like the worst GDP decrease in ever in our history. 20, so 22 guys, million jobs were lost. Right? So yep. that episode, and, and you might say, okay, but we're just temporary. Yeah, but did we know that? Yeah. And in fact, and in fact, the breakdown in supply chains and so on that later on start appearing, I think that things were much, much worse than they actually end up being mm. because we very quickly yeah. moved away from it. And, and, and when I say we, I mean, a lot of you know southern states in the U.S. Right. A lot of places that decided, you know what, this is crazy. Six weeks, maybe it's too much, and let's let's go on and and try to get back to normal to normalcy. If you let the California model be applied mm. across all states in the nation, I think our ability to get out of that might have been much, 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 much slower and much, much worse. You still see that there was a divergency between yeah. Yeah. states, uh, but but I think if the impact on everybody's you know again the, the intertwined system, this monster that's super connected, right? The economy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, once you start severing all the ties, it's not obvious what's going to happen. Yeah. And there was no no interest in 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 trying to be again humble. Like I don't know. This is untested. We have no idea what could happen here. Yeah. And 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 again, is a lack of not only lack of humility, but lack of understanding of the of or even appreciation of the importance that is for people to make their own decisions, for yeah. people to be able to judge the risk. Of going to the grocery store, judge the risk of doing this by themselves, right? And and yep. and and again, yet another lesson of how the places that did empower individuals yeah. to make their decisions, not only I think the, the the sort of trade-off between life versus money was actually much better that they achieved at the end of the day than the places that tried just the top-down the top-down approach. Yet yep. again, uh, our side has the evidence to to back it up, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I love how you tied all it together with, with individuals, because that's really what it should have been more about. You, you know, you were in some of those discussions 
in, in Texas, what was going on in COVID. At the same time, like I was in DC, this was I was at OMB, a chief economist, and so I found myself in a situation in the situation room, right? As somebody who grew up really poor, pretty poor, in, in lower income South Houston, and uh, homeschooling, and uh, first time generation college student, and everything else, I was in a situation room talking with folks about. What are the next steps? How is this going to affect the economy and everything? And, you know, like you, I was I was very hesitant. Some people were pretty humble about it, but there was this view that basically this is what we have to do. Uh, the, 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 the politics was such that we can't have 2 million people die. That, that was the forecast at the time. If we don't do anything, like it, it pushed the, the president, uh, leaders, governors into a worst case scenario sort of situation without looking at all the trade-offs. And it was very un right. unfortunate. I mean, you had the Fauci's and the Burks's of the world that were pushing one way. And I was trying to say, no, look, let's look at this thing. I was writing internal memos and everything else saying we cannot do this. It, it was very frustrating. I remember you, you could ask my wife, like I was very stressed at the time because right. Right. I just saw no, that this I, was going I, down. You were too, I'm sure, man. And it was like, you know, we're setting a bad precedent. What's going to happen next? And, and and I think if we would have had more of a targeted approach to those who need it or have the freedom of those who you know what, if you want to mask up, then you mask up. If you want to do this, that, stay home, you should have that opportunity. And I think the marketplace would have much better have, have dealt with the resources and everything else and the allocation of those resources with PPE. We wouldn't have spent, you know, $7 trillion in new national debt. That's all going to hurt us. Like to your point earlier, like it's nothing is free. There's going right. to be a cost of this. And also, you know, Carlos, I know you've looked at this too, but think about all the people who didn't go to the doctor, who had mm -hmm. cancer that went further along than it otherwise would, or other issues. My mom with her uh, liver issue that she ended up passing away last year, but how much more because she went to the doctor and gotten that checked That's out. Right. That's had right. All that and, not and, happened. And, and, and in fact, if you look at uh, uh, one of the early days of the pandemic, uh, Scott Atlas, uh, which yeah. became a friend during that period as well, and John Burge, which is a professor spoke, of Chicago that I... He spoke at Salem Center, correct? Yeah, he did. It was great, yeah. and, and, and John Burge, which is also this famous you know, OR professor of Chicago, not a political person at any... And I don't think Atlas was up to right. that point. He's not a political person. He's just like somebody that you know happens to be a Hoover, but um, it's a doctor thinking about p p policy of healthcare and so on, right? They wrote a paper early on that basically like, listen, focus primarily on on a lot of a lot of listing out potential trade-offs and yeah. trying to get some basic estimates of what we know, how this is going to affect this, this, that, and the other, right? If you go back to that paper, and I, I encourage, I love to... One of my favorite things to do in academia is go back to predictions yes. and see, okay, how did it pan out? But people forget to do that oftentimes. And you look at those predictions and it's like, wow, that's, uh, you know, they were right about lots of these things, right? And that was the early days. And they were deemed, you know, heretics. They're deemed right. like people not to be, you know, invited to the cocktail parties. Or, canceled. They, they were canceled. <laughs> exactly. But, but again, right or wrong doesn't right. matter. The point yeah. is that we needed to engage with those questions yes. and we didn't. And we did, and that that that's so. And also, here's another example of, mar of like the 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 government being in uh, uh, stopping markets for finding solutions, right? Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that would have been very helpful, very very helpful, is to be able to have a lot of testing available yes. very quickly, yeah. cheap, and not bureaucratized, because then you know people could quickly assess, oh, am I am I sick today or not, and so on, who would interact with, right? If tests were, and I think Paul Romer, I think the economist Paul Romer, early on in the pandemic said tests. If we have ubiquitous testing, that's akin to a vaccine. It's mm -hmm. the same thing, mm -hmm. right? So basically that information, it slows down because all you want to do, it was never about not getting sick. Yeah. Because because we know in a respiratory virus that this thing, you will get eventually exposure to it. it was all about slowing it. Yeah. Right? Slowing 
to not get in, in, in really out of control settings. So if you were able to have testing everywhere, enough people would test, enough it would slow down contagion in a way that probably would make things very, very easy. Now, the US, through its amazing pharmaceutical innovation system, developed like test kits like that. We had mm -hmm. like seven, eight, nine different companies that immediately, immediately had, but you know who doesn't allow this, this to be you know available for free everywhere? The FDA. Yep. yep. Those tests were not, you know, oh no, you have to go through FDA approval for something that has absolutely no risk to you. You're just gonna mm -hmm. scrub something in your nose and know whether you're sick or not. But the FDA has a set of rules and those rules, again, and I, I to this day, I think that one of the biggest problems that generally vote, vote Republican voted for Trump in 2020, yep. uh, but I was very critical of like, at that moment of crisis, we should have shut down the FDA yeah. or, or like, you know, speed, basically do the things that it, in, in Operation Warp Speed actually was like something to really speed up the creation of the vaccine, which was fantastic. But other things could have been done also to allow yeah. things to be more flexible from the perspective of challenge trials, for example, for the perspective of approving, just allowing and, and yeah. distributing tests in a much faster way. And the markets, you know, if you could sell a test for five bucks, the companies would be happy to sell. I'll be happy to buy. Yeah. Nobody's being hurt in the transaction. Everybody will benefit it. And to, I think by summer 2020, it was summer 2020, Europe, Germany in particular, is a place that embraced the whole testing thing. And it's sort of like a lot of these tests the American companies developed were available for mm. very cheap in Germany mm -hmm. during that time. And that helped them. That helped them tremendously in, 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 in having you know, more information flowing more freely. But again, in being inter interferes in markets have, have giant impacts. And we don't, you know, we don't think about very carefully about, okay, what's the unseen part of having yeah. FDA? Oh, protect people from the, yeah, but what are the things that you know, they don't, they slow down? That's a great example of slowing yep. down the approval of something that would have helped people tremendously along yeah, the way. Yeah, no, totally agree. I think that's why some of the states are doing these right to try sort of initiatives. I mean, there's a lot of good things. Yeah. I mean, maybe we need more at the states. That, that's what I talk a lot about too, Carlos, is you know, the, the Congress and everything is so dysfunctional. We're seeing some of that now with the speaker races and everything else going on. Right. I think the states are where the action should happen and, and are happening. Um, we need Congress to get out of the way of a lot of things, but there's there's so much there. And, and, you know, you're so right. I mean, there's so many costs that are unintended consequences of what happened during COVID. I mean, the school shutdowns, we hadn't even talked about all that. But if you added all this stuff up, we're not we're not going to be out of the woods of this for, I mean, decades. Quite a while. A long time that we otherwise like what else could we have done during that period? You know, they stopped businesses. And there was essential versus non-essential, you know, I know right? work, workers Government and everything. deciding what's essential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right. yeah. Right. And, you know, entrepreneurs, right, are the, the number one thing that get us over any sort of obstacles in human history. And, and you're setting them to the side and you're going to say that the business, the government is now the entrepreneur, which is going to get things wrong time and again, like they have in the past. Right. And, right. and that's what right. we that's what we saw. I, I just hope that we do learn these lessons. This is why I love talking about some of these things. I know this is three years ago, but we're still feeling a lot of the cost of what's oh, happened. Oh, no, th this is this is life. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a watershed moment. I think people, yeah. it, it, the idea, oh, pandemic's behind us. No, 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 no. No. What we saw in the pandemic is a set of lessons that's going to endure with us for a long time. Yeah. Not only a set of lessons about economic freedom, not only a set of lessons about the how how experts have to be very careful in sort of like being humble about like it's not just me there's trade-offs i need to be thinking about others and so on this that the decision making is not that simple going back to the notion of the the power of markets of course the yeah. markets were so underappreciated their yeah. value and their and their and and so i hope i do hope that those lessons now are lessons that we can go back to and use as a way to highlight and 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 sort of re-present how important it is 
for individuals to be given the abilities to make decisions by themselves, for individuals to be able to help us collectively yeah. do better by having their own uh, choice being done without interventional government. I remember what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, another example of it, which it, it was something to be reminded of, the importance of federalism. Yes, yes, yes. Our lives yeah. in the U.S., in the places like Texas, were much better at the end of the day than lives in a lot of different places in the world. Because in the U.S., like it or not, we still have the system that allows for experimentation. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot. There was a lot of different policies, and and thankfully, thankfully, uh, there was a lot of latitude for governments in the local states, the states, to be able to do different things, different places. And we learned quite a bit. But not only is it useful because we learn things as a result of different people, be, different strategies being tried different places, and you can try to learn from that. That's one thing. But also allows people to vote with their feet. Yeah. And boy, they voted. Boy, they voted with their feet. <laughs> yeah. We saw. I mean, that's that's something that again, if you study that carefully. It's an amazing demonstration of what people pursue, what people want. People didn't migrate out of Texas and Florida to go to California and New York. No. It's the other way around. Yeah. And because they saw an opportunity to prosper, they saw an opportunity to pursue their individual goals in the states that, you know, nobody moves to Texas because of the weather. Yeah, right. Let me be, let, let's be frank. This is like, you know, it's really not nice. Nobody moves to, Texas, to Austin, Texas because of the nice vegetation. Yeah. That's not what we have here. Yeah. But we have a system that allows people. I cannot think of myself moving to almost any other state in the country because I appreciate what Texas has to offer for us. Right. Yeah. Texas offers us the ability to be freer, not free, but freer. No than other places. And, and I, I, I cannot, you know, that's an incredibly important thing. I and agree. the pandemic was a yet another demonstration of that. Yeah, I, I agree, Carlos. As we're wrapping up here, I think the big three things that I could think of that we talked about so far is number one, humility. Number two, individuals are, are the economy. There's not overall economy. And your point there about federalism, I think is so important that we've got to make sure because we need this, this laboratory of competition among different right. ideas, different states, whatever it may be, this is what the beauty is of us all coming together in this world that we live in today. Um, so as we are wrapping up here, Carlos, what are some of some last words or anything else that you'd like to share before we close for the day? I'll say I'll say this. Uh, I mentioned that that, um, you know, it's hard to think about moving out of Texas. Yeah. Here's a reason why I wouldn't move out of Texas and maybe move to Florida or many other states in the country right now that are in the forefront of this school choice. We live in we need to break this monopoly, this monopoly of schools. And we're, we're having a, a special legislation going on here, uh, a session, legislative session in Texas fighting this issue. Uh, Texas is behind the curve in this. Texas yeah. is not allowing people the freedom to make choices for themselves and decide how to best educate their children. I mean, you, know, you, you have children, I have children. That's such an important aspect of our lives. And having the ability to evaluate for ourselves what's best for them, no better. No, no better. Again, it's an individual thing, right? Do you really think a central government, a central body is going to ever have the ability to decide what's best for your children? than you, a person who sees them every single day, and you, the person who has the most vested in their success. Right. It's just like a, a, a right? It's obvious. Yep. It's obvious yeah. that giving people the individual freedom to make those choices and, and the resources. Now, I happen to have the freedom because, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm in a place in my life where I can choose. I can go to a private school and so on. But most you can, you can afford that it. Ability. Yeah, exactly. Most Americans don't have that. And right. I think it's a duty of ours to provide Americans with the ability to make the best choice for their children. And again, states have been a great place to see that the, the data is already in the, uh, the, the improvements in terms of educational achievement in the states that have more flexibility, have more school choice programs, whether it is, I think Florida is the place that was in the forefront now for, 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 for a lot of years. It's just, it just worked. Give people freedom. They will prosper. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, 
Hey, man, Carlos, it, it's really been a pleasure having you on. Keep up the great work that you're doing, and God bless you and your family. Thank you. Thank, thanks and so thank much, you. Carlos. Thank, yeah. thank you for your, all, your, all your work as well. I mean, it's a blessing to have you in Texas and, and working you know, both at the federal level and the state level as well. So yeah, you. yeah. Well, let's get together again soon and uh, have some good we'll food and, and drinks and stuff. So, But for, for the audience, thank you all for joining us today. Please rate and review us. Leave some comments. Uh, share it with your friends and family as well. We had a great discussion here with Carlos. Calvajo, University of Texas. Um, Salem Center. Please go check that out as well. And until next time, let people prosper. <laughs>